This episode of Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by our friends at Dashlane, the form-filling, password-remembering, data-protecting, all-in-one application. Commander Will, engage jingle mode. Dashlane, live life in the fast lane. Get yourself some cash lane, and you'll be living easy and free. Your internet experience could be so much better with Dashlane. Set phasers for protect, Will. Dashlane is the service that remembers your passwords, protects your online data, and fills in your logins automatically. How might you integrate Dashlane into your life? Well, if you've been following along, last week Will sold my credit card numbers in exchange for some designer ferrets. This one's name is Gucky. That's spelled G-U-C-C-I. If I'd been using Dashlane, I would have been alerted the moment the hackers made their first purchase, which was... a sword? Will, who did you sell my credit card to? I'll never tell. It was Anne. Anne, why did you buy a sword? I'm a sword buy. We buy swords. Q-E-D. <sighs> Fine. You too can learn about the application Wired Magazine called the best full-featured password manager and the New York Times called life-changingly great. And unlike some people I know, Dashlane will never sell your data. It's called Wealth Redistribution Daddy Warbucks. I'm middle class. Tell it to the judge. Start dashing through the internet and help support the show by visiting dashlane.com slash RDR to start your 30-day free trial of Dashlane. No credit card required. If you like it, use code RDR at checkout to save 10% on your premium subscription. All right, on with the show. This week, the uncanniness of air travel, the permanence of grief, the nature of catharsis, what does it mean to be an ethical journalist? And if you were on a plane that crash-landed in the desert, how would you survive? It's a conversation with two of my favorite creators, and it's coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. This week, I was joined by Lauren Shippen and John Dryden, co-writers and co-directors of Passenger List, which we featured in the previous week's episode. The first season was not fully released when I interviewed these two, and so if you're already caught up on the show, you are, I believe, three episodes ahead of Past Me. I had listened up to episode five when I conducted this interview, so if they seem a little cagey about spoilers, it was for my sake. I love talking to John and Lauren, and it was a delight to get them both at once. I talked to them in the LA morning slash Winchester UK evening, which was their old phone hangout time during the writing phase of this project. We talked about so much stuff, from how they got to cast Patti LuPone, to avoiding harmful tropes, from a little boy on long flights, to how weird air travel is in the first place. I learned so much about the two of them, and the way they work together. Let's get into it. Here we go, a conversation with John Scott Dryden and Lauren Shippen. John and Lauren, welcome back to Radio Drama Revival. It's a pleasure to talk to you both Thank at you once. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be back. John, I don't think, I actually, I think Fred probably interviewed you, but I don't think you and I have ever talked for this show. I interviewed you a couple of years ago for Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape, but never never for this. So, a re-hello. Um, I, I, to start off with Passenger List, I, I want to, I'd like to hear about the reading 
that you both did that informed this series. Because when I listened to Passenger List, I suddenly remember the last five years in a context that didn't directly involve the electoral politics of the United States or the United Kingdom. Let let me tell you more acutely what I mean, Mm. because I remember when I listened to the show, MH370 from 2014, German Wings Flight 9525 from 2015, the co-pilot suicide into the mountain. I remember all the Carol Cadwallader Mm. uh, articles about the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal in The Observer, and the poisonings of Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury. And those are the ones that are like most immediately salient to me. Um, And that's all just conjecture. But what, what are the origins of this story for you? I guess there's the two factors, really. I've always been interested in um, who is on the plane next to me when I've traveled. And I've been, my parents lived abroad when I was a child and I was sent to boarding school. So I was, from the age of six, I was kind of put on planes by myself and had plenty of time to daydream about the kind of things that might happen on that flight. And, you know, as a a child who, who wasn't particularly keen to go back to boarding school, I used to, uh, and my parents lived in the Middle East. We lived in Kuwait, actually. Yeah. So I was I'd be flying over the desert. And I would have these kind of fantasies of the plane being hijacked and taken somewhere kind of interesting that wasn't school. Um, you know, that we maybe would crash land in the desert and I would be, you know, brought up by, a, you know, some tribe of desert dwellers and have some sort of different existence. And... <laughs> I used to imagine that kind of thing a lot and think about it a lot. Um, and then I would also think a lot about who else was on the flight because it's one of those situations that a, anyone that flies finds themselves in that you're sort of sitting next to people who you actually know nothing about, um, who, who could be anyone. And, and um, there's a lot of time to think when you're on a plane. So that that was something I would consider a lot and wonder if you know one person might be a a politician another person might be an escaped you know criminal of some sort you know someone else all all this kind of thing but i but i guess the the real impetus for this idea was the um the malaysian flight that disappeared um in 2013 um and the mystery that surrounded it in the weeks and months after uh the the plane disappeared it was. It felt to me like it was the only story on the planet during that time. Like it just dominated absolutely everything. And I became. I became slightly obsessed with it. And every day there would be a different theory. You know, was it the pilot who had, you know, had a midlife crisis? Um, you know, who crashed the, the co-pilot? Sorry, or was it the two guys that got on the plane mm. that had emerged were traveling under fake passports? Was it the, you know, was the plane carrying some sort of secret cargo? That was a theory at one point. There were so many theories. And the other thing that struck me about that, um, that also was in the news a lot, was just the sheer emotion and grief of the relatives and their desire not to let go of their loved ones, to, to try and believe that somehow this plane had not crashed, but it had been diverted somewhere. Their their loved ones were, were sitting in a, a hangar, you know, in Uzbekistan or somewhere, that there was a conspiracy. Um, because that's better than believing that you've lost that person that you love. And and so there was a, one of the really striking things was how suspicious um, and angry the relatives 
as a group seemed to be with authority um you know they who they felt when were lying to them were not uh providing the correct information and stuff like that and and that they felt there was a cover up um and i guess that's a natural re- reaction to 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 something like that you don't want to believe that your loved one um is not in this world sure. anymore and that struck me very strongly sure. and and so was the i guess the the inspiration for this um there was also the air france flight that disappeared Ooh. um in the atlantic flying i think from Ooh. rio de janeiro a, a couple of years before that um sank in a, it, it has actually been discovered now but um mm. but there are a lot of theories around that as well so there's a lot of you know planes that disappear and i guess it's a sort of amalgamation of of this yeah i think there's something really chilling and hard to process about losing someone to a to a mystery like this and i think that's one of the reasons that whenever these things happen it sort of grips the national consciousness even if we don't know anybody who was on the plane it's something that you know it's this it's this grand piece of technology it's a huge innovation for humankind to be able to sort of jet around in these metal tubes <laughs> and even though it, it can be sometimes scary to be on a plane, we do, we do understand that it's it's quite safe. It's much safer than traveling by car or really any kind of travel. And there's something really uncanny to a plane just disappearing mid-flight and us not having the answer. It feels like it's not supposed to happen. And I, th- I think that that's a, a feeling when you lose anybody is that there's this feeling of injustice and of, of wrongness if it's not supposed to happen. And I think that that's just like further emphasized by the strangeness of losing a whole you know hundreds of people all at once because of something that we can't explain right now john you you brought this up so i'm gonna dive right into it uh good morning lauren i'd like to talk about grief um (laughs) the caitlin's grief and the lengths that she goes to remind me very much of uh, a, a, another John Dryden show, Life After, right? It reminds me kind of of Ross and his obsessive drive and his unwillingness to accept his wife's death. And that was a Mac Rogers script, of course, but did that character, Ross, spark other questions in you, in either of you, as you were writing this, this script, this story? Um, not not directly, but um, but I, 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 I guess okay. that's quite interesting. You know, I, I find a lot of I don't want to sound too more, but I, but I am quite kind of um, fascinated by grief, and and um, I, I guess I find um, you know it, it incredibly moving actually people's reactions to to losing someone. So so I have been drawn to other projects a bit like that, but I, I haven't noticed it as a pattern. That that's quite interesting. But when I think about it, actually, yeah, um, I think that uh, I, I find it quite a fascinating subject, and. I, and and I guess when we were think, working yeah. on passenger list, I never saw the grief aspect of it. Actually, I don't know whether Lauren did. I I didn't, but I guess it's it's just always it's it's sort of there almost by definition. You know, with a plane disappearing and and you know family members wanting sure, answers sure, it's to what in. happened. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that that as you said, John was just sort of there in, intrinsically, and that as we were you know, building, building the show and, and kind of creating the plot and this, this, you know, all of these moving parts. I think my focus wasn't necessarily on that piece specifically, but then it was something that in working with, with Kelly, you know, really 
kind of came to the forefront and getting to sit with her and go through all of the scripts as we did before going into production and making tweaks here and there where I noticed that we'd sort of written this this journey of grief and and, and we were able to then push Caitlin to further extremes, I think, and really lean into the, the desperation that grief brings you to. And I think that's because, you know, Kelly was approaching it from from a different angle as us. You know, actors always are approaching things from a slightly different angle from the writers or directors. And she had just, not, I guess, too recently, but she had, had been working on Sorry for Your Loss, which is a you know Facebook show that's all about grief. And um, one of the books that she recommended to me uh, that she read for for that was The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Dindian. And that, I you know, reading that and, and then working with her on Caitlin's arc, I think, for me personally, really brought grief to the forefront. And it, by that point, all the scripts were written. And so it just manifested in small tweaks and then and then the way that we approached directing it. But it it was sort of just part of the story from the very beginning because of the nature of the story that, that John had created. Yeah. And I, I think with the character of Caitlin, which Kelly plays, um, you know, if, if you've... If, in terms of what her motivation is, you know, it's not like she has some inside knowledge, particularly that, um, you know, that she suspects that what they're being told isn't true. Um, but that that is the result of grief and the effect that her grief and her unwillingness to let go of her brother um, creates this this obsession with finding other answers to what might have happened to the plane other than you know, the, the answer that she's been given, which is that it's crashed into the sea. Um, and that was very typical of, of real, uh, you know, uh, plane crashes, very typical of the reaction of relatives that, you know, they, they didn't want to believe, uh, you know, what they were being told. And they would rather, even if they didn't really have anything to go on, uh, believe that, that there was some conspiracy of some sort. In this case, there kind of is a conspiracy of some sort. So Caitlin's not, you know, a, a million miles off, but um, but but her motivation comes from that uh, that unwillingness to let go. I think there's something very cathartic and satisfying about the idea of Caitlin just like methodically running down every possible lead and eliminating all of these factors like through the show, which feels like uh, like a luxury that that like the I don't know. I don't know what to call the group of survivors, like the surviving family members in these actual disappearances, don't generally get a chance to achieve. But you know, when something becomes an obsession, and and certainly, you know, when you can't let go of something, and and it and it's all you can think of day and night, and you you can't sleep, you're just thinking about. It, that's that's kind of precisely what you do. You know, you 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 explore every avenue. Um, it's the only thing that. Um, kind of gets you out of bed really no i was gonna say it's like she's stuck in sort of the the bargaining stage of grief right i mean the the acceptance part of of grief i think is understanding that it is going to be a part of your life forever um especially losing someone like your twin you know you're there's never a time when you're all of a sudden okay with that and you're you're you've put it behind you and i think you know caitlin's refusal to accept that that's going to be the case has, has manifested in this obsession and in this this bargaining stage where she's just refusing to accept the, the facts as they are presented to her and and it's 
preventing her then from actually experiencing the grieving process so much so that you know she doesn't even go to his funeral with her parents and and she'll do like the the grief kind of this obsession twists her right like she'll do anything to get Mm -hmm. to the bottom of what happened to 702 and valerie venix the new york magazine reporter is like equally willing to discard her ethics in order to get Dimo Dragov. Like, there's something that's that's worth it to sacrifice part of yourself in order to achieve. Um, I'm curious what you wanted to explore about the moral and ethical gray areas that um, these characters inhabit. Well, she'll definitely, um, you know, lie and um, deceive people and, and take huge risks to, uh, you know, to try and find out stuff. You know, so she's not um, careful about herself um, and potentially puts herself in, in dangerous positions because it's an obsession. Um, right. And, yeah, I, and I guess to cross the line in terms of, you know, she isn't always truthful with people. Um, I, I think what, one of the things that was interesting for me in this and, in, in, you know, reading the initial treatment and, and talking to John about this character and about this story is that, we have a lot of investigative stories and investigative podcasts in fiction. And, you know, for the most part, the lead character that you're following is someone who is a professional. They're either a journalist or a detective, but they know what they're doing and they have an ethical code. And a lot of the conflict comes from their ethical code being confronted. And, and someone like Valerie Venix, where she's a journalist and she has her own morals that she's following, but then can kind of make compromises here or there or, or figure out sort of her outer limits. Whereas Caitlin is a 21 year old college student who is completely beset upon by grief. She's not good at this. And that was something that really- she's skipping her ethics classes too. Yeah, skipping her ethics classes to lie to people who are grieving and who've lost somebody. And I I thought there was something so interesting in taking this, this classic investigative character and making them not very capable. And, and it's not something that she is, She's not really looking for the answer, no matter what it is, in the way that a journalist is or or in the way that a detective is. If I'm trying to find the truth, whatever the cost and also whatever the truth actually is, I will accept it. She's looking for a very specific truth, whether or not she wants to acknowledge that. And I think that there's something really interesting to me in and having someone who's doing all of this and doesn't really know what they're doing and hasn't defined those those moral codes or those limits for themselves. And also, you know, a, a 21-year-old person who is living in an increasingly chaotic world and who, as all people in their late teens, early 20s are doing, is, is trying to figure out how they fit into that world and how they live by their values and what their values are. Um, and so I think I think Caitlin is the, the cross-section of a lot of really interesting dynamic types to explore morals with because we don't not to say that people in their late teens or early 20s are like amoral or or that they are, are bad people or anything, but I think that there is a degree of, of forming that is still taking place and shaping that is still t- taking place and you kind of get to decide the person that you want to become. And so to throw that person into then a situation that is going to force you to make decisions that are going that's going to inform who you become, I, you know, you get some interesting conflict with that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, in a sense, she's completely out of her depth. So that makes her, you know, kind of different mm-hmm. from an official investigator. 
she is just a college sure. kid. She doesn't know what she did. And she's not even a particularly good liar. So she gets caught out quite a lot, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so her kind of, I mean, she does, I mean, she, she is essentially a good person, but she has put her whole <laughs> life on hold. She's kind of given up her her college. She, she's even lying to her parents uh, about that. Mm-hmm. It's the grief taking over and the obsession taking over. Um, and she's out of her depth. She's not very good at it, but she's going to pursue it regardless um, until, as Lauren says, she, until she gets the answer that she can find acceptable. Um, you know, she wants a particular truth. Um, the, there's another aspect to this, which is that um, as the story progresses, and we're kind of at that stage with the this, this story now in terms of the release, um, it becomes clear that there's a slightly added motive for her investigation um it starts off very much as it's just her grief um that's making her not believe what she's told and uh, investigating every other line of inquiry but as the story progresses it there's a concern that she has um that actually her brother may have in some ways uh been involved she is also, and this becomes apparent about halfway through the series, concerned her brother may have had something to do with this plane disappearing. He is a <laughs> unprofessional hacker. Um, and, and so a very real concern is, was he somehow involved? And, um, and this starts to become apparent halfway through the series. And, and you begin to wonder if this is actually Caitlin's real motive for investigating it. Because she wants to prove to herself. Is to determine. Hopefully that yeah. he wasn't, yeah. I, I mean, I've been a, a huge admirer of, of, of Lauren's work for a long time. The Bright Sessions was something I listened to a lot. And um, and we didn't know each other. And I um, follow, I followed um, Lauren on, on Twitter, had been for some time. And I just sent a... A general message because I don't think you can direct message on Twitter just sort of saying I'd love to get in touch stuff like that. and Lauren very kindly did get back in touch and we started talking about this project um, and at first it was really just whether um, Lauren wanted to write a, a, a script um, and she did uh, wrote a brilliant script and th- and then we just kept on going I guess and there was one point where Lauren was so busy that we thought oh well, she's not going to be able to do any more and we begged and pleaded and eventually <laughs> kind of came on board and co-produced it. It's funny. It's funny that that's, yeah, that that's the the perspective. Cause I, yeah, for me, it was like, I, I had already, I, I was yeah working on some other things, but was like, you know, trying to, to move everything around so that I could do passenger list. Um, yeah. I mean, it's exactly as John said, he reached out to me on Twitter and I had been an admirer of his work for a long time too. And was just so flattered that, um, that he asked if I was interested in writing a script. And then once, once he sent me the outline, I, I very, um, very boldly kind of came back and was like, I have all these other ideas too. Can I tell you about them? Um, and he was very patient to listen to me and, and we just had a, fu- a fun time kind of passing ideas back and forth. And then, you know, he, he let me get more deeply involved, which was such a treat. I mean, the thing is, we, we got a lot of stuff kind of, uh, kind of a bit wrong. And, and I was very conscious of not because we we had another writer involved also helping because um, 
I, you know, I was essentially executive producing. But we're, so we had another writer, a male writer, and he was great, really good, Kevin Rodriguez. But it just occurred to me that it was if we had a kind of female lead, and um, it was a, and we had two kind of men working. We just kind of wanted to have um, you know a female perspective on this, and and that was um, a reason Mara came on board as well. She had been involved with the project of Panoply. A documentary project and I just really um and I, I'd read her book actually as well uh, you know about being a childhood star and I found it absolutely compelling and I, I just thought wow what, what an interesting perspective and um we kind of wanted to balance up the the, the team a bit especially with a, a female um lead and also the stuff that, you know that I was kind of getting raw you know I was falling into traps that like the the um the gay character in in the the version I had kind of got killed off you know in um, episode two or something like that and Lawrence sort of went no 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 that, you know this is this is the problem with how uh, of how these characters are, are depicted and um, he needs to be right at the centre of the story or I'm not doing it and so um, <laughs> so we kind of went with that and I'm so glad we did and and then when Kelly became involved she brought. A whole load of things that she, you know she wouldn't be involved unless it could deal with uh, this and that as well. Um, and I kind of like to think of it in some ways as um, that the the murder mystery thing is a kind of skeleton on which the, the the story hangs and pushes it forward. But it's kind of a Trojan horse type drama as well, in that it it's it's so layered and it deals with a lot of other things. Um, that the you know that having the right team behind it have um have brought to it i guess i <laughs> i i'm not a i'm not a person who believes in like kowtowing to an audience i don't i don't think that that's productive i don't think that's good for a story but i also am aware of the things that you're going to get eaten alive for and and aware of you know like harmful tropes and things like that and so um i you know i th- i think that there's a there's a really good and interesting way to to deal with things like you know queer characters being killed and and especially in a show like this that's so big and high stakes and and the stakes are life and death but i yeah i did sort of say like that's you know twitter's gonna, gonna eat everything alive and then this is this is sort of the the greater context for for why maybe it's a it's a good idea to change it and it led to some interesting things i think ultimately that change yeah i mean it, it led to a much better more rounded story and um i think originally there was a there was a lot of um dead ends that she followed and what this led to was a kind of point in the story where the narrative kind of really kicks in and um, it becomes an investigation that she can properly pursue to the end. And then Kelly brought a lot to it in that respect as well. Well, I think, I think one of the things that I find so both compelling and uncomfortable about the show is the way that it manages microaggressions between characters um, like that engineer that Caitlin visits in episode two, who manages to exemplify precisely why his profession is hostile to Asian women uh, by saying something misogynist, immediately followed by something kind of racist, um, or or the way the Lapeers behave to the Congolese nurse in episode three. You know, this discomfort is kind of threaded through the show as though everyone is always only barely getting along. Um, so you've kind of answered you've kind of answered my question in this discussion uh, because my question was was this a conscious creative decision or did it just sort of show up in the work? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Both of those those episodes that you mentioned were um, Kevin Rodriguez episodes. Um, so he, that, I think that you know, I, I I can't speak for him, but it's something that definitely was a was a trend in his episodes of, as you say, like this this air of discomfort. Um, and I think just the the nature of who Caitlin is and sort of being this this bullheaded person who is is you know at times bullying people it, it it can make people very uncomfortable and then also the reality of the fact that yeah she's a young asian woman and so it's going to be met with the things that that you know both women and asian people are met with of those yeah those microaggressions those things that that really just skate by i think most people's consciousness but that are are so damaging to the person who's who's on the other end of it um but yeah, I don't. I don't know if it was a a conscious right. choice as much as just trying to represent the world as it actually is. My ears pricked up when I when I heard it. <laughs> First of all, because it's stressful to listen to, and second mm. of all, because I was like, oh, there's something going on here. You know, John, you were starting to say that you know it started as, the, as this thriller, but then it became something that you could hang other things upon. Do you want to expand a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I, I always saw it as that because um, it's kind of in some ways a whodunit and you're trying to find out what happened to this plane, who was responsible, which is very much Caitlin's search. But I guess what a podcast affords is is more time to explore other things. And so it's a very kind of nuanced um, show. And... And in a way, the whodunit, the mystery, is a kind of skeleton, um, a framework that that drives the story. Um, but hanging from that is a, a, a whole load of things about the world today, and a kind of commentary on that, and and you know, and things that the 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 creative team that we put together brought to it. So, for instance, Kelly was really keen to do this if it could somehow say something about you know the immigrant experience in america you know she, her parents are first generation immigrants and she wanted to bring some of that to it and insisted on bringing some of that to it which i was really you know happy for her to do um so yeah i see it as, as in some ways a bit of a kind of trojan horse drama that um <laughs> contains a whole load of other things um but but is you know but moves because of the you know the mystery everyone loves a mystery mm-hmm. um but you know if it didn't have that other stuff you know it, it, everything has to kind of be about something in some respects and so i think this is a very nuanced show and has a lot of layers about character and about people's experiences that you know that we wanted to resonate with with the audience and feel that, that there's something kind of deeper there yeah I- I think we only care about mysteries in as much as we are invested in the people who are involved in the mystery. You know, you can be, you can be, I, I love Agatha Christie books, you know, and, and, and oftentimes it's just the, the moving parts of the mystery that keep sort of keep me interested. But I think the most successful mystery and conspiracy stories make you emotionally invested as well. And then, cause th- that just raises the stakes that, that much more. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, the Lapeers, 
um, not just because of the Lauren cameo, but because they they exhibit a trait, uh, Wayne and, and Wendy, right, exhibit a trait that I've noticed um, John, in, in some of your previous work, going back to severed threads, if not earlier, of unsubtly critiquing colonialist behavior, the, the peers, these American aid workers in the Democratic Republic of Congo are so certain that they're doing God's work, and yet they seem to have some measure of disdain for the country that they're in. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, like the hypocrisy of those characters and what you wanted to explore with them? Lauren, you too, of course. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I was brought up in that environment because my parents lived abroad. So I was always uh, interested right. in how um, in, a, in a kind of expat type community. Were, were your parents in the British foreign ministry? Like what brought your family to Kuwait? We were quite unusual. You know, like we weren't from my, my dad was an engineer of sorts, but not really. He kind of, uh, you know, talked his way into jobs and stuff. He was never qualified or anything. But we went because of my mum. So we had a very, but my mum is very strong. She was a consultant, anaesthetist. So we used to follow her around the world. And she was the, the kind of breadwinner in the family. So we were there. It's slightly unusual. But most of the other people there were either there with the oil industry or, you know, diplomats and stuff like that. Um, and it, that was the world I existed in. Um, and expats can be very disparaging about their host countries. Hmm. And... Um, yeah, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? I guess. But but they're there to make money. Uh, and they they still talk about their home country as home. And the weird thing is, for expats that have been away for a long time, is they have this idea of what home is. And then when they eventually retire and go home, um, home has become a different place from what they remembered it being. Because <laughs> everywhere changes. Um, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so those kind of characters always interested me. Um, I mean, the other thing that always interests me is, is religion, actually, and, and um, uh, evangelizing. Um, and, and so these characters kind of embody both of those, a, a kind of blind belief, I guess, um, and, and a sort of superiority that, you know, I guess one could call colonial or, or you know, developed world kind of attitude towards what's called the undeveloped world, I guess. Yeah, I, I think there is a a type of character that appears a couple of times in, in this show of, you know, well-meaning, seemingly well-meaning white people, um, which is, you know, as a, as a white person living in America and growing up around a lot of other white people um, and growing up around a lot of liberal white people, uh, there's this this weird sort of quiet insidious racism that exists where it's it is that very sort of like patronizing and and colonial racism that that masquerades as care and i think that that's something that's really hard to unpack you know it's it's hard to sort of find an entry point to talk about those things with the people who who are, are sort of the, the, the worst um, examples of it because in their minds, they're, they're not racist and they're not doing anything wrong. They're helping. And to tell somebody that, you know, no, you're not actually helping. You are perpetuating this, this problem and this structure and this, this sort of white supremacist agenda throughout the world is, 
is it's it's often met with you know just just it's shut down immediately and so i think that that's something that really interests me of of the yeah the the white person who who thinks of themselves as as somehow above accusations of racism and somehow above perpetuating white supremacy because i I think those people i've encountered a lot of those people in in my life and and i'm sure i've i'm sure i've done those things as well um and it's something i'm I'm really invested in trying to unpack and fight against but i I don't quite know the best ways to do so all the time which one of you named wayne lapeer i think it was kevin do you remember it was kevin because all i could think about was was NRA chief Wayne LaPierre and how little I would grieve if he suddenly vanished. <laughs> That's all. Honestly, I would not be surprised if that was if that was a, a, a pointed naming, but I, I don't know. I, I, sure. didn't, I didn't ask Kevin about it. Uh, but I'd add to that as well that in a, you know, characters are always complex and I wouldn't say mm-hmm. the LaPierre's are completely unsympathetic. I think they're, they're beliefs no. are genuinely held and that's what makes it so difficult to unpack is that they are like lauren said they're well-meaning i mean i think they were knowingly uh going against the rules of uh, you know that was laid out to them of what they could and could not do when they were abroad but i i think that's probably quite common i think i know it's quite common you know the the that it's seen as kind of red tape and they 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 kind of did their own thing and got funding um, and would, um, on the face, uh, uh, you know, outwardly be obeying all the rules, but doing their own kind of missionary work on the side. Uh, but they would see that as a necessary thing uh, and not a bad thing. And I, I think that's very understandable too. I mean, I, th- I think we all can can sympathize with the way in which our government makes it really difficult to help people both domestically and abroad. And I, I think it's easy to understand manipulating the system so that you can, you can help people because the system often is structured to just protect itself and not actually help you know people in need. But then that, you know, that's complicated by the fact that, you know, they're not necessarily bringing malaria vaccines or food to these places they're bringing a religion which you know depending on your view on things is either uh is either help a genuine help or a, a huge detriment to a community and so i think that's the interesting complexity is that you know depending on, on your worldview i think there's something in the lapiers to find that's sympathetic and then other things that can be quite quite hard to understand or, or hard to to see as as actual aid. I, I really appreciated that the show contains this bonus for Vietnamese speakers. Like, it's not strictly necessary that I understand everything that Caitlin and her parents say to one another. Um, can, can you tell me about the decision to bring in code switching and bringing in uh, Khan Aiden Nguyen to write the Vietnamese dialogue? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have done quite a lot like that because I've made projects... Um in different parts of the world. I mean, particularly, I, I guess, I've done a lot of project of, of audio projects in India where actors very easily switch from English into Hindi uh, and other languages, actually. And you kind of understand what they're, what they're saying. It was something that we spoke to Kelly about because I, th- right. I think something she said early on it was when she's at home, they do this sort of switching. And she really mm-hmm. felt that anyone listening to this... Um, 
that knows about this or has experienced it will not find it authentic you know their family situation unless they do that um and so you know it, it's actually not a difficult thing to do you know what you've got to do is cast you know right and get the right actors because if you if you haven't got actors that can speak that language then um it's not going to work you know so so it, it, it put a pressure on, on casting it very authentically, which we kind of wanted to do anyway. I know Lauren was very keen to have all the parts cast as authentically as possible. And um, and so once right. we did that with Kelly's family, it was really just a question of rehearsing it. And, and um, you know, and I, I think the switching came very naturally to them because it was an authentic experience to all of them. But I think it gives them, um, I, I always love that in audio drama. I think it gives it a real kind of sense of energy. Um, it, it requires yeah. a sort of slightly improvised approach of working with the actors but w- we kind of worked a little bit in that way anyway I think um, with even the stuff that wasn't in a different language Laura I have a, I have a Broadway question for you <laughs> please um, be, well because you've made no secret of, of your love of Broadway and I, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about the casting and directing of Patti Lupone and how how you managed that I, I i guess i guess this isn't this is really kind of an access journalism question like so tell me what it was like you know uh how how did you how did you manage you know in i would be fanboying like how did you how did you manage that <laughs> that's a terrible question and i'm sorry <laughs> no i mean um i i think i managed it by 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 fangirling a little bit not necessarily at at patty lapone herself but the the night before, yeah, the night before we recorded, Kelly and I actually went to, I had already purchased tickets for us to see company before we even cast Patti LuPone because Kelly and I, we saw a couple shows okay. while we were there because we're both huge Broadway fans. <laughs> um, and, you know, we were just sort of in London and, and uh, didn't know a lot of other people. And so we, we would sort of, you know, spend our, our time off going going to shows and when she wasn't on, on set for, awesome. for Star Wars as well. Um and so I, I'd, I'd gotten tickets for us for company for like a Saturday night performance. And then we, you know, cast Patti LuPone. We went and talked to her after the fact, you know, after um, the show in, in, in backstage. But I think, you know, Kelly and I had a good, healthy freak out kind of as we were sitting down in the theater. <laughs> and sure. um, this was especially uh, um, sort of amplified by the fact that Stephen Sondheim himself was sitting about four rows in front of us. Oh my god! So we had a good, we had a good freak out, and then we went backstage. We met her, and it was fine. And so I kind of, you know, when we actually got to the the next day and we're recording with her, I felt like, like I'd sort of gotten it out with Kelly a bit. It was nice to be able to fangirl with her. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, we didn't cast her till quite um, close to recording, and that was because one of the um, challenges of this production was that um, Kelly. Marie Tran was in Star Wars and they were shooting Star Wars at the time. So she, her schedule was always kind of up in the air. You know, it was difficult to know exactly when we'd have her because <laughs> they kept changing her schedule and we had to follow her, you know, to London and then LA, you know, so it was, it was complex. And, and so we had to kind of cast and schedule the production around her availability. And um, we were due to be back in, with her in LA yeah. and we lined up all the actors in LA to record the next stuff and, and then got a call uh, saying that she wasn't going to be flying back from London back to LA for, for another week um, and me Lauren and Mark uh, Phillips the, the sound designer were all here in London and we're thinking oh man you know 
we were, we, you know, luckily we hadn't booked our flights. Well, I think we had. I think Lauren had booked her. We had to change some flights, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. We think, what are we going to do for the next week in London? You know, <laughs> we're going to twiddle our thumbs. And um, and this is where Lauren's really on top of her game when there's sort of challenges like this. And I remember you phoning up and saying, you know, hey, we could just. Why don't we just do the, um, uh, you know, the psychic witch episode, and we we can try and cast it here, and we can get Kelly on this day. You know, we we should use the time while we're here. Um. And so um, we set about thinking, who can we cast? And it just so happened that Patty Lapone was in London doing yeah. company, you know. And we thought, would, would she do it? Could she, you know, I mean, what does she do during the day? That's the amazing. show's in the evening. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> let's call up her agent and see. And it really was just like that, you know. And she, to her credit, said, yeah, wow, I'll do it. And we um, thought, okay, we've got to find somewhere to do it. You know, she was available on the Saturday. And um, so we, we, we just sort of booked a, a room in a hotel and did the whole episode there. Yeah, it was <laughs> wild. That's fantastic. And um, that was that. So, you know, I think a lot of this is sort of taking your opportunities when, when sure. they present themselves. So this is what you mean about, like, this is what you mean about remaining flexible mm-hmm. and being willing to improvise in that regard. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I think so. Sometimes challenges are, are the thing that lead to the most interesting solutions. Audio is, is, is an immensely kind of flexible and forgiving medium. And, um, and the, the trick is to see where, you know, op- where opportunities are. And often they do come from, you know, the challenging situation where you think it's kind of impossible. And then usually something comes out of that that's even better than what you were, you know, initially planning. And I think that happened in this case. You know, if, if if it had all gone to plan and we'd gone to LA and we met, we wouldn't have had Patty Lapone in this. Yeah, wow. What a what a get. Good job, both of you. Luck and, and you know, being bold enough to ask. <laughs> this isn't this isn't really a question. This isn't a question, it's more of a comment. I'm sorry. I hope you haven't been getting a lot of those on the book tour. <laughs> um but don't think I didn't notice you sneaking Ian McCune into the first episode, Lauren. I noticed. <laughs> I noticed and I appreciated it. Are there are there other uh, Bright Sessions alumni that are that are going to show up in Passenger List? No, there there are there are a couple. Um, I'm just trying to remember exactly when they show up because, of course, I mean, you know, we had we had about a thousand speaking parts, sure. <laughs> and um, and you know, decided to to sort of because I, I I think pretty much all of the. All of the creative team is is in there in some capacity. Both my, my myself, awesome. John, and Mark Phillips, our sound designer, are all in the show as voices at various points. Um, and I'm in there <laughs> a couple times as a couple different voices. Um, and so so is Mark too, yeah. I think. So you know, you're, there was you're the lead flight attendant, right? Yes, yeah, I'm the flight attendant. And Mark was he was in the most recent episode as a sort of homeland security person talking about luggage and I, I believe he shows up at a, as a bartender a bit later um <laughs> and so I, th- I think there was an effort to take some of the the smaller roles and just have a, someone do a couple of, of things um and so ian also shows up a little bit later as well um and and there's a couple of the bright sessions people in there although you know i i think because they're such sort of small small scenes and, and one-off lines and things like that I, I I genuinely don't know if they're going to sort of end up in the final cut because I think that you know Mark is is doing such a wonderful job of shaping 
the show in post-production and of course things shift and things change and some of those things are vital and some of them aren't um so yeah i i you know i brought in some of my some of my ringers some of the people that i know sure. can do a couple of things really quickly and really really well um but as to as to whether those things sort of end up in the final the final cut um remains to be seen sure so lauren you just got back from new york comic-con uh how was your flight? <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was good. You know, I definitely, I, I, I think we all know a little bit more about planes than maybe we'd like to, <laughs> um, now. And there was actually one point in coming in to LA when we were descending where the plane, we experienced worst, tur- the worst turbulence I've ever experienced where we sort of oh my God. lurched pretty hugely and kind of almost, you know, went, went a bit sideways for a second, um, which was a bit scary. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I don't know if you feel this way, John, but I definitely am I'm observing more things now than I ever have when, when flying. Yeah, how, like John, you were saying you've been on planes since you were six, but how have, how has, the experience of working on this show has it what are what are you both like as travelers first of all and has has working on the show changed your experience of plane travel uh i mean not really for me um i i quite like flying because um uh i can sort of switch off quite well um i guess that's becoming increasingly hard now that there's kind of wi-fi on planes and stuff you know that you you're kind of still <laughs> so i kind of liked it when there wasn't and um you know, you think, okay, for eight hours, no one, uh, I can't answer emails, I can't get online, I can't do anything. I think that's all changing. But I, I quite like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I do get a little nervous sometimes uh, at certain things, but not, but not hugely. I guess I'm quite fatalistic. And if the plane, you know, does a <laughs> nosedive, that, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. Um, but I, I, yeah, I guess in some in particularly turbulent weather, I I I I feel pretty nervous, yeah, and hope the plane's not going to crash. Yeah, I I don't know that I've gotten more nervous overall, um, just because yeah, I mean, I know I know more about planes now, but I also you know know the statistics quite well in terms of of the safety. But I I, I do find myself I think looking more at the people around me and especially sort of the, the flight crew and and wondering about you know, what, what would happen kind of mm-hmm. what John, you were describing, before, you know, in the beginning of, of the, the fantasies you would have as a, as a kid, these sort of imaginings of the people on the plane and what would happen if it went down and you had to sort of figure it out. And I think I've, I've, I don't know that I ever really had that as a, as a kid and I'm having that now. And it's, it's kind of a fun thought experiment sometimes to think about, you know, who, who all is on the plane and, and how you would all sort of, um, you know build a society if you ended up in a lost situation (laughs) are you are you each plane talkers do you prefer to like sit and read or listen to music i keep my on over the ear headphones on from you know when i scan my boarding pass till i leave (laughs) the plane like i don't want i don't want anybody talking to me Uh i'm not a i'm not a stranger chatter (laughs) Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I I tend not to have headphones on and stuff, um, but I just hate it when someone starts talking to me. That I'm sitting next to someone that is a chatter. Yeah. Oh. I obviously obviously I, I I'm I'm not rude, but I but I do like um, I I do like the kind of 
piece of being in my own space and i like being on a plane i like being in a, a place where there's lots mm -hmm. of other people a lot of the work i do actually i get a public library because sure. i quite like that buzz but if someone starts to talk to me <laughs> that's yeah it kills it for me <laughs> I, like, I like to sort of observe <laughs> Uh, I'm going to let you both go. Thank you so much for coming on. This was well, fantastic. Thanks, David. It's great to chat to you and, and great to hear Lauren's voice after so long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having us, David. And it was it was so good to catch up with John. It reminded me of, of all of our early morning Skype sessions of, of battling the time difference. Because <laughs> this was this was the time schedule, right? This was the slot when you would mm -hmm. talk, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I'm, it is my pleasure to have facilitated it. If you'd like to know more about security theater, the performative practice that results in the harassment of Muslims and people of color, as well as indignities and inconveniences for everyone who isn't privileged enough or didn't have the foresight to get on TSA PreCheck, you should read The Things He Carried, a 2008 article in the Atlantic Monthly by Jeffrey Goldberg, in which the author carries an alarming number of things through airport security. Although the stuff he gets away with is kind of undercut by the fact that he is an affluent-looking white guy. It's still an excellent read. The things he carried. Did you know that we have a store for you to buy things at? Did you ever look at our logo and say, golly, that's beautiful. I wish I could carry objects in a bag decorated with that beautiful logo. Did you say that? Are you saying it now? I can't read your lips from this distance and you're, you're too far away to hear. If you are saying that, visit radiodramarevival.com slash shop. You will not regret it. Here we are on the precipice of history. A momentous occasion, your favorite time of day and mine, the moment of will. Hello, listener. Last episode, I recommended that you listen to our old interview with Lauren Shippen about the episode 50 Rose from her podcast, The Bright Sessions. That interview is fantastic, and likewise, this week, I want to recommend episode 426 of Radio Drama Revival with, you guessed it, John Scott Dryden. In this interview, David talked to him about Tumen Bay, one of his podcasts with the BBC. It's a great listen, and of course, I will link it in the show notes for you. And hey, listener, stay stay warm. If it is cold where you are, it's kind of chilly where I am. I'm in Phoenix, so it's not really that chilly, but I'm kind of chilly. You stay warm. You warm my heart. Mm-hmm. Okay, bye. And now, let us sound the traditional end of episode gong, followed by the sound of Anne fighting a patriarchy demon with the sword that they purchased. With my credit card. That's right, we maintain continuity along advertisements. Go get it, man! The sounds of that gong and that incredible sword play tell me it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation, the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe, the Pamunkey People, and the Nanticoke People. If you live in the Americas, Australia, or New Zealand, you can learn more about the native, First Nations, or indigenous heritage of your area by visiting whose.land. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Anne Baird. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs> <laughs>